Happy Valentine's Day. It's the season for love in reality and in fiction. And this means we can enter safe and family-friendly love story territory. Isn't that right? Well, in fact, romance tales can raise all kinds of controversies and even personal temptations. I'm thinking of a certain recently released movie that offered on-screen sensual content in a redemptive way. Well, we've already talked about the problems with exploiting real-life human actors for visual stories like movies, but what about sensual stuff on the pages of books and not on the screen? We have an inside agent in the romance industry, previous guest Parker J. Cole, who is able to help us explore mail-order brides and monster myths. Today, she rejoins Fantastical Truth to help us waltz right into these slippery issues of sensuality in stories. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com, where we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply the meanings of these stories to the real world that our author, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, flying solo today. Zach is absent today. I'm told that he is fighting a dark hound from his favorite fantasy series, The Wheel of Time. Zach explains that this is, of course, as uh, everyone knows, a shadow spawn that is the twisted soul of the wolf. It's accompanied by the smell of burned sulfur. Fortunately, I think he's gotten a hold of some bale fire. It's uh, considered one of the few things known to reliably destroy any kind of dark hound. Or maybe that's just a, a skunk underneath his house. Anyway, it falls to me to announce that this is episode 99, the last two-digit numbered episode of Fantastical Truth, entitled How Can Christians Discern Sensual Scenes on the Printed Page? I, of course, must disclaim, and believe me, I have a pile of concession stand items later before Parker and I start our conversation. I must explain that I am not a native fan of romantic tales. If Zach were here, I was going to look forward to quizzing him to see if he'd ever read uh, something that is uh, labeled romantic fiction. Closest I get is something like a classic uh, fiction that's uh, renowned for having romance in it, like uh, Pride and Prejudice. But even then, uh, it's a lot more history and social drama than romance. There's romance in there along with everything else. And for my part, that's how I prefer romance, uh, not just in real life uh, with my wife, uh, but in fiction alongside other genres. Uh, personally, I feel that romance is best used as a seasoning. I feel the same way about horror. Uh, oddly enough, uh, Parker, as, both, uh, as a fan of both romance and horror, uh, probably feels differently about that. So we rejoice in those differences here. It's a fascinating discussion, and I hope one that brings glory to God and that helps uh, address reader sensitivities, uh, but also tries to ground this whole discussion in Scripture. First, let's go to sponsor one for this episode, a returning sponsor, Johanna Frank, with her novel, The Gatekeeper's Descendants. This is the back cover for that fantastical tale. Every choice he makes complicates his life. When a teen has a chance at redemption, can he find his way back or remain forever cursed? 1973. 13-year-old Matthew McKenzie struggles to fit in. Unable to come to terms with his father's passing five years prior, he tries to sidestep unwanted attention from violent bullies by telling little white lies. But when a fistfight lands him on the brink of death, he is shocked when he finds himself hovering outside his beaten body in the company of an overly friendly spirit. Pipiera avoids change at all costs. As assistant to the head gatekeeper of an ethereal kingdom, she's less than thrilled when she's sent to Earth to aid a traumatized boy headed down a dark road. But when a supernatural rebel interferes with her job, the bright-eyed being fears she'll blunder her mission. As Matthew feels the pull of adventure from his suspicious new friend, he worries that he may never be able to right all of his wrongs. 
And as Pipiera continues to fail to influence Matthew, she finds herself caught in an adversary's web of deceit. Can Matthew and Pipiera steer clear of the trap and reach the path of enlightenment? That is The Gatekeeper's Descendants, a fantasy from Johanna Frank. You can get that cover, full description, and the all-important purchase link at our show notes for this episode 99, as well as by going to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. All right, from there, I think Parker is riding up on a white horse, galloping in slow motion and possibly stopping, and then you discover it is some Lovecraftian monster in disguise. Let's go into that discussion and hope to avoid any further monstrosities. All right, let's wish a very happy Valentine's Day to our returning guest, Parker J. Cole, who is an author, speaker, and radio show host with a fanatical obsession with the Lord, Star Trek, K-dramas, anime, romance books, old movies, speculative fiction, and knitting. She said she is an off-and-on Mountain Dew and Marshmallows addict who writes to fill the void the sugar left behind. And her next book, A Match for Bernadette, number 11 in the Marianne's Mail Order Bride series, releases on March the 3rd. We will include that pre-order link in the show notes. Parker, thanks for rejoining Fantastical Truth for such a sensitive topic. I really appreciate you being brave and giving it a go with me today. And thank you for having me. I am looking forward to the conversation. Woohoo. First, let's go to our concession stand, which of course is now fully stocked with a manner of Valentine's Day treats. Uh, you can even get those little chalky heart thingies with the uh, love emojis and such on them, I think, right over there. I won't be touching them, but you may want to, gentle listener. First, a disclaimer, uh, just knowing that Zach and I, uh, the co-hosts of the podcast regularly, are blokes. We're going to be biased a little bit about romantic fiction. I can't say that either of us have a steady diet of the stuff, but that just makes me curious about what's going on in the Parker J. Cole side of the fiction genres. At the same time, I do wonder if, and again, this is a generalization. We're going to be using a lot of generalizations here. I wonder if us being blokes may give us some natural immunity or resistance when speaking about sensual scenes in fiction. Uh, I don't mean full-on sexual scenes. Uh, I still don't think those are a great idea in any context, but moments or scenes involving some central attraction, maybe. I can say at least for myself without saying too much that I think I may have a natural resistance to the effect that these scenes have on other people. Uh, generally, when I read you know, something about a, a long kiss or something like that in a book, like, I just kind of start laughing. It just feels a little awkward and like, yeah, I, I kind of know why that's there. Uh, that's for the uh, attractive element of it, you know, but it, it doesn't work on me. Other stuff might, uh, but we're going to try to be sensitive about those who are affected by scenes like this. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to have a lot of generalities in this show. Please don't yell when we overgeneralize because I'm sure it's going to happen, especially when we're talking about differences between men and women. And there's just no way to deal with every single situation, every single vulnerability, uh, every single personality type. At the same time, I do want to be aware of the risk of overgeneralizations. One of the generalizations I have in mind here is one that maybe you grew up hearing in your church or in that one youth group, you know, that was kind of cringe. It's a generalization like this. Well, men are visual. Women just like poetry and roses and soft music. That's not always true. Women can also be visual and men may be cuddlers. Uh, your exact mileage may vary, but I, I just want to be careful when we're saying things about the exact types of temptations that men fall into versus women fall into. 
Uh, and that's something we have to be aware of when we're talking about central scenes in fiction, central scenes on the page. Uh, the same is true with people's personality differences and even like generalized ethnic differences. We got to be careful not to overgeneralize with that. Uh, another concession stand item here. Yes, we're talking about romance on a fantastical genre podcast, but it still relates to our main topic here, uh, not just because romance is a standalone genre, but because there's lots of romance that seasons the fantasy genre, especially when you get into classic fantasy that's maybe meant for a more female-friendly readership. Uh, there's going to be romance in there. It's almost inevitable. Uh, also, to be sure, uh, Parker and I are going to speak as plainly as possible about these issues uh, without getting too detailed. Uh, we hope, for Christ's sake, literally to strike a healthy balance there, not leaving you confused, uh, but not also not just using a bunch of vulgarities or too specific language to describe this stuff. Finally, we are talking about sensual scenes on the page not on the screen. Uh, this topic is too big to talk about in one episode, even if we're limiting it to written material. Uh, it would get even bigger and more complicated if we're talking about movie material, uh, visual portrayals of sensuality or even nudity that actually require people to, I think, commit sin in order to bring this entertainment before your personal eyes on your TV screen or the movie screen. Uh, that's a different issue that we will have to deal with at a future time. And we've already talked about it in one of our earlier episodes of Fantastical Truth. Finally, on a personal note, and I wonder if Parker would agree with me here, and I wonder what her concessions may be too. Uh, this topic makes me a little nervous just because these are very sensitive issues and the sexual revolution is very real. It has many modes of attack the sexual revolution does. Uh, I'm increasingly convinced that Satan himself is at the back of this level of corruption, this assault on God's image. And he has many ways of attacking people. Uh, the, the sexual sin starts at the heart level, uh, but you all can also catch it from the culture around you, uh, from the movies, from the TV, even from government policy. And yet, if you try to make rules, too many rules against it, uh, you also get the sexual revolution assault, that corruption uh, from within the church. And many people have genuinely tragic backstories with church environments or private schools or whatever, uh, where you're aware of people who were loudly proclaiming how bad sexual sin is. And then it turns out they were getting into the, them themselves and they just come across as hypocrites. Uh, Parker, any more concessions for this very huge concession stand before we proceed into our main discussion here? The only concession I can add is this bag of sweet and sour popcorn. And I say sweet and sour because my views may be different from our listeners' views, but this is why we're trying to make generalizations of this particular topic. It is a very volatile topic within the church because there are some people who, like me, have a wider palette of tolerance than for someone else who doesn't have that same tolerance. And so we definitely want to be able to be sensitive to that as well as not pull back from our own views about the topic. So it's a lot going on here. And that's why I said I have a bag of sweet and sour popcorn. I don't even think they have sweet and sour popcorn in the real world, but we have it today because that's just this type of topic. But I'm really excited to talk about it because I love discussions about this because it helps us hone our critical thinking skills. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. 
Amen to that. Uh, it is about owning our skills. And uh, as I approach this, I mean, certainly from a male perspective, not the male perspective necessarily, uh, I, I am reminded that one ought to, at least in theory, hear from the strong. And what I mean by that is the weaker brother, stronger brother uh, perspective in the scripture. Uh, people can be so vulnerable to temptation because of this kind of content. And in that case, uh, it's not necessarily the, the weaker brother who sets all the rules. You know, the weaker brother may have, and I mean, again, borrowing from the example of, a, of an immune system, someone may be immunocompromised and you do need to take special care when that person is around. What do you know? We're back at the whole pandemic uh, issue. You know, if you know that someone is immunocompromised, is vulnerable to catching a disease from the outside. Uh, then yes, you may need to wear a mask. You may need to avoid that person. Uh, you may need to take a specific medical precautions. And yet, how how much would you need to take those precautions? You know, how much is that person responsible for taking their own precautions? I mean, these are issues of wisdom that Christians must engage with, not only for physical health but for spiritual health. Uh, and that's why we keep running into these issues with fantastical truth uh, and the issue of fiction, uh, because fiction can infect you, uh, but it can also serve as a nutrient to make you healthier. Uh, it's a good gift of God, uh, but also can be corrupted by sin. Uh, I would also put romantic fiction as a good gift of God, even though it's not my personal favorite, you know, a story that's classified under the label romance or historical romance or cozy romance or mail order bride romance. You know, it's not my first choice of story. But that's not even a male-female thing, by the way, Parker. I, I, I would not immediately go to the TV and, and turn on like a sporting game either, you know, a traditionally male interest there. Like I'm not as much into sports ball and I'm not as much into romantic fiction, but I want to understand why sports fans and romance fans like those good gifts of God, those good cultural practices. So that leads us to chapter one, kind of familiar territory for you, but I hope you don't mind repeating it. Uh, just a, a quick biblical summary uh, to review. What is a biblical purpose of romantic fiction as you understand the purpose of the genre? I think the biblical purpose of romantic fiction is to show the many ways that God loves his people. And we do that through showing love through each other. Now, romantic love, in my opinion, is probably the first love that God showed when Adam and Eve got together. That's man, woman getting together and creating life. Now, we all understand that it goes downhill from there <laughs> in the Garden of Eden, but having that love is just, having romantic fiction is just a wonderful way of seeing that happen over and over again. And I did a more in-depth view of that on speculative faith when I did a series on the fantastical background of romantic fiction. And so you're invited to go to speculative faith to read that article where I go more in depth into that. But it's really a re repetition of the love that God has for us being shown in men and women throughout the ages. I like that you went back to Genesis for that. Uh, I'll bring this up a little bit later in our discussion. But when you read Genesis 2, which is an expansion, I believe, on day six, as described in the days one through seven in Genesis 1, it then does this little cutaway, you telescope in, to the events of day six, when God is making male and female, both in his image. And if you are reading that uh, with your imagination wide open, uh, you get almost uh, the best kind. And I, I really want to be careful here as we haven't defined yet what we mean by sensual scenes, we will. We get the best kind of 
sensual portrayal. By that, I just mean engaging the senses. If you're imagining this paradise, this perfect garden that God has made and barely 24 hours have lapsed before Adam has begun the first scientific research project on Earth. He is now a zoologist. He is classifying the animals. He's giving them names, exercising his right as God's regent on Earth. And then without the passage, by the way, saying anything about uh, Adam felt lonely, Adam felt that something was missing. The passage doesn't comment on Adam's emotion like Christians might if they're retelling it for Sunday school. All we get is God saying, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God puts Adam to sleep, withdraws a rib from his side, makes it into a woman. And then Adam wakes up and gives the first recorded poetry in scripture, apart from Genesis 1 through 2 itself. You know, Adam is rhapsodizing about this beauty before him. And that's why I call that sensual. Uh, because if you are then reading the description later on, it says that the man and, and his wife were both naked and unashamed. That is a good kind of sensuality. And that is so important, I think, to recognize that this is in Scripture here and there. And so you can't always say that that kind of sensual moment is wrong. But you cannot read Genesis 1 through 2 and go, yay, good sensuality, you know, naked people in a garden. It's wonderful and God loves us. Because you also get Genesis 3 and the serpent sneaks in there. And then suddenly everything is ruined. And one of the first problems we have in the human origin narrative is the problem of corrupted sensuality. Suddenly the man and his wife have to wear clothing because there's something now shameful that they feel about walking around without any clothes on. Uh, and it's a, it's a famous metaphor as well as historical reality that God must clothe them because something has gone wrong with that central expression. And, and Parker, I love what you're saying though, that the best kind of romantic fiction helps us recapture that original created purpose for marriage, uh, which involves bodies and sensuality and all that good stuff before sin corrupts it. Another thing I want to add to what you said is that we need to recognize who benefits from a skewed view of sensuality and sexuality. If you look at Genesis at the last bit, it does say they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And there are many different thoughts about what they may have seen. People think there may have been a glory about them, some sort of, I want to use the term loosely, aura, if you will, that it was a like a, a shield raiment of them. I disagree. I think he saw her, you know, you know, hanging all out. <laughs> you know, I think he oh, saw yeah. her that oh, way. Yeah. But there There's was kind of a medieval idea that they're all like robed in light or something. Like there's a discomfort with the human body and the goodness, I think, of the human body that's behind those assumptions that they're they're robed in light or, you know, like the angels. Like, no, no, like you said, they're letting it all hang out. They're they're walking around fit as fiddles, uh, and ready to start the uh, you know, the stewardship of earth being fruitful and multiplying. And I think that's important because what happens is if you look at some tribal cultures where they have, they're not um, fully clothed and everything, particularly like in certain parts of the world, in the developing world, they don't have a lot of clothes on. And especially the women, they don't have tops on. They just walk around with their um, bottoms covered. The men don't go crazy looking at them. It's just a part of their culture. That's a cultural thing, but it kind of hints to my point. Maybe that's what Adam saw. It wasn't that he didn't find her beautiful, but he didn't find it shameful that he found her beautiful. And afterwards, that happened later. I don't know. Like I said, only Satan benefits from a skewed view of sensuality and sexuality. Only he benefits from that because he can destroy us from this particular type of sinfulness that he would. 
seeing. And so I think we need to make that distinction as well. Right. The devil corrupts God's image. Like that's the first thing he goes after is God's word. And he goes after the reflection of God's image bearers of God's glory back to him. Uh, Satan is a destroyer. He cannot invent something new. He has no taste whatsoever for beauty. He's a total Philistine. He hates God's truth. He hates God's beauty. He wants to see it marred and destroyed. And I think uh, scripture is not very clear on the devil's motives, but I think it's a worthy speculation that Satan knows he's going to hell, uh, but he wants to take as many people with him. And just quick disclaimer there, Satan's not going to be poking at anybody in hell with his pitchfork and his devils aren't poking anybody. You know, hell is reserved for the devil and his angels as the expression for eternity of God's wrath. Satan knows his doom is sure, the hymn says, uh, but he also wants to, I think, strike at God's image as much as he can. And, and that's why we find a, such, a, such an assault on the image of God through sexual corruption and even human sexual revolutions. Uh, leading to abuse and the wrongful use, we'll get to this in a moment, the wrongful use of sensual content uh, in, uh, in books. Another thing, too, is that when you look around, sensuality, particularly within the church, is very much a taboo topic. And because of that taboo, some people feel a certain way about even expressing these ideas. A number of people that I know they don't even want to talk about this type of thing because it's so taboo in the church. I think in a way, and I say the church loosely, I'm not talking about gotcha. individual churches, but just loosely using the term. We don't have those type of conversations, particularly as I was growing up. It was don't do it. Don't come home pregnant. Don't do this. I better not find out you did this. That was the type of conversations that we had. So it was always don't do it. Even other girl I knew, different background and everything. She was told, don't come home pregnant. You know, that's what you were told. So then you separate sexuality and sex and sensuality from the person as if it's a thing that's out there, out in the world that you grab hold onto when it's something that's embedded in our being and understanding that and then having healthy relationships. Or like you said, uh, Stephen, earlier, you said, we want to have within the biblical confines and boundaries of this topic. So I think we need to address that as well. Right. And I, I think at, at least in theory, and this is where, you know, I need to hear from you about this uh, as a, a writer of romance, historical and otherwise, you know, I want to at least understand the theory that a work of romantic fiction can include healthful expressions of romance and sexuality, I think. Uh, it, not not sex scenes. I, I, I still don't like the idea of, you know, prolonged language descriptions, you know, that do appeal to the flesh, that appeal to the reader's temptations, and that can genuinely hurt people uh, who are vulnerable to this kind of temptation. So I don't mean that. I guess what we'll get to in a moment, what I do mean. Uh, the one thing that I would want to clarify before we go on uh, is that we're not going to, I mean, not just because Parker's in the room, but I'm not going to dismiss romantic fiction uh, fiction that uh, includes romance in it, you know, whether that's fantasy or just a straight up uh, historical fiction of some kind. I'm not going to dismiss this as an inferior genre. Uh, Thomas Umstead Jr. actually in our very last episode 98 uh, accidentally set this up when he was talking about the expectations that readers have of their genre and how it is uh, from a, a novel marketing vantage, at least from the insider's perspective, uh, it would be absurd 
uh, to dismiss or mock uh, what is labeled Christian fiction uh, just because it doesn't have bad words or violence or things in it. Like uh, among a lot of readers, that is the genre expectation. Uh, and we don't get to just laugh at the genre because that's the genre rules. Uh, similarly, I think with romance, uh, it's expected that you're going to have like certain story beats. Like in Parker, you've talked about, you know, the idea that as a romance writer, you know, there are literally formulas like outlines for what's going to happen by page 98. Uh, and, uh, and some of that, you know, comes in for some roasting sometimes, you know, and everybody likes to laugh at them, uh, that the Hallmark movies and such. But these are, before you talk about sin's corruption and bad escapism and such, like these are people made in God's image who like these kinds of stories, just like there are people made in God's image who like sports ball, uh, sports ball, football, basketball, whatever. Like those are good gifts of God, results of human culture. People made it using the gifts God gave them. And other people get way too into sports. You make sports and athletes and such into idols, but the gift itself still remains a healthy expression of athleticism, healthy competition, uh, trying to get better. Uh, and I, I keep bringing in the sports comparison because both sports and romantic fiction involve body work. You know, they can be kind of sensual. You know, you see a commercial with sports stars uh, getting their uh, uh, Gatorade from a bottle or something. And, you know, and there's sweat running down their chiseled chins. And, you know, uh, that almost like that. That's why we're getting to the central description here in a moment, because stuff like that emphasizes the body in a way that appeals to the senses, not necessarily sexual attraction. It's funny because me, I love men with beards. And I've made that clear on Facebook many times. I've actually had to kind of pray about it because it's gotten to the point where if I see a dude coming down the street or something, he doesn't have a beard. It's like, okay, you're not worth my time. <laughs> wow. So, I, mean, I have and no I gotta beard stop at this that. time, so I'm good. You know, <laughs> you know, but it's just, I just like beards. That's something that I'm attracted to. And mm -hmm. some, some people don't, you know. Is that wrong to show, like, she looked at his beard and she goes into a description about his beard, something that I would do, because, again, that's something that I personally like. Another thing that I like on a man, personally, is his neck. He has a strong neck, a strong, common neck. That's a sign of masculinity. For me, that's a sign of masculinity. Um, a strong neck, you know, something like that. And Steve looks like he's really confused by this. But hey, this is this is who I am. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just I'm just saying that you're 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 breaking the rule I mentioned earlier. The rule is, and I want your comment on this. Because I've gotten okay. comments from other women. The rule is, as taught in some evangelical youth groups, not all of them. We're not dismissing all youth groups, but the, in some evangelical youth groups and other material about courtship and whatnot, the rule was men are visual. Women are about soft-spoken words and smooth jazz and bouquets of flowers. So the, the problem ended up being that women got the don't dress like this, you'll tempt the dudes talk. And guys got the don't pledge fidelity to a woman talk. And they never got any talk about themselves being visually modest or that is prudent in their own dress. And thus, you know, you had guys walking around without their shirts on thinking there is no issue at all because women aren't visual. And this is where we get really frank, because you're saying like, no, there's a thing about for you. There's a thing about beards or necks, you know, <laughs> just talking very frankly here. It's funny because in the conversations I've had with different women, it's about the physical attributes of a man. I know one of my family members loves men with big lips. 
she loves that. That's something that really appeals to her. Another big lips. <laughs> yes, big lips, juicy lips, or lipalicious, or whatever she called it. I can't remember. Okay, but, okay. Um, but she likes that and other conversations too. This doesn't negate that I don't want to have poetry or flowers. I'm not really a flower person. I actually hate flowers, but I like plants, I like non flowering plants. I don't like flowers. And uh, not saying I don't want those things either, but. I'm a visual person too. I mean, I'm not going to look at, you know, the Crypt Keeper and think, oh, that's hot. You know what I mean? I'm not so, so removed from the physical that I'm looking mm-hmm. at that guy like, well, let me just love him for who he is on the inside. That's insane, you know? Because if Adam saw Eve and he was happy to see her, what makes us think Eve wasn't happy to see Adam? Like, wow, wow. Look at that. This guy looks great. Look yeah, Adam is the OG that. man. You know exactly. he had to have been shredded and super intelligent <laughs> because he just got through an entire zoological research project and naming all the animals within 24 hours, not including sleep time. Uh, this guy could work it with the brain uh, as well as those powerful abs. So. <laughs> Before exactly. We get too much exactly. Into though about Adam's <laughs> characteristics, Adam's right. abs, abs, <laughs> Ad, Ad, Adam's abs. Yes, you know, and that, and then Adam's apple too. You know, right? <laughs> My wife's gonna laugh at this discussion later. Okay, so so Parker, I just realized though that what you've just done is actually you have raised the bar. Uh, you've actually made it more difficult now. Uh, and you've built a more difficult case for you because. What you've ended up saying is that there was a potential then in romantic fiction or or even just descriptions in any kind of story. If you're describing a dude and his firm chin or any of those things, and just as you would if you were describing a woman and whatever characteristics she has, uh, you're, you're, you're conceding here that women are also visual. So if you get a visual description in a book, this even before you're talking about who's touching whom or whatever – this could count as a sensual scene because you're applying to at least one sense, the sense of sight. Let's pause for a moment. It was getting uh, interesting in there, but it's also interesting in the Lorehaven Guild. Our second sponsor for this episode is once again, us, Lorehaven, uh, taking a little time for ourselves this Valentine's Day season to promote once again, the Lorehaven Guild, the exclusive Discord server that we host at Lorehaven. Right now, we're doing our book quest, about halfway through a book quest through the superhero fantasy adventure Power On by H.L. Burke. Every month, we do a new book quest through a new book uh, made by a Christian author in the fantastical genre, fantasy, science fiction, and beyond. As per usual at Lorehaven, in January, we did The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And now I can announce that our third book is actually going to be The Seventh Sun, uh, the first book in the Age of the Seventh Sun trilogy by the now late Lonnie Forbes. Uh, the book three in that trilogy actually happens to have released today. It's called The Obsidian Butterfly. I believe that closes out the three-book series. So join the Lorehaven Guild, of the Discord community, by signing up for Lorehaven at lorehaven.com. If you haven't already, just go to lorehaven.com, find the form at the bottom, enter your email address. It's not sold or handed out anywhere. Uh, you can also go to lorehaven.com slash subscribe if you want to share a few more details uh, for that subscription. We will then welcome you heartily into the Lorehaven fan community and send you that super secret invite link to the Lorehaven Guild. Again, just go to lorehaven.com, get all the information and the subscription boxes there. So let's go now to chapter two. Very, very squishy territory here. Chapter two, what do we mean by sensual scenes? Now that we've used the word for a whole section, what do we mean by sensual scenes? And this is our part two of this. 
how can they benefit stories? Like what, what do they add to stories that are potentially helpful? And, and I'll, I'll start just by saying that what I mean by a sensual scene is descriptions of the human body, physical attraction, touch, or even some uh, physical response at, at a romantic level. Uh, this could include, for example, uh, lengthy descriptions of, you know, I, this is difficult because I don't want to give an example and make someone stumble or just sound really, really cringe. But let's just say, you know, if there's if there's a scene of two people kissing in a movie, you see that happen. You know, they paid actors to do that. That could get a little awkward. But what you get in a book, no one actually kisses in the book. But you can go inside his or her head and describe how they're feeling about the experience. And that can, for especially a lot of readers, be even more potent because now you're describing this central response from the inside and you're making it sound great. And for someone who's not experienced that or who has some kind of uh, 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 temptation response to that, it can be pretty hazardous territory. And I will give an example here of a, of a, a potentially uh, potentially hazardous book because, and I feel comfortable doing this because I liked the book, The Seventh Son, uh, the uh, the book by Lonnie Forbes. And we're actually um, hoping to read through that in our next uh, book quest in the Lorehaven Guild. So I want people to go out and buy this book. And yet we also said in our review at Lorehaven that this book includes some sensual descriptions. And I wanted to just be very clear about that in order to warn any readers who are tempted this way. And we said, uh, quote, frequent sensuality, including deep kissing and bare body descriptions but lust and premarital sexual activity are discouraged, end quote. We'll put that link in our show notes. So that's kind of my long description there, but at the risk of my over-explaining it, like what, what do you think of? What descriptions or like, you know, barely described images do you think of if we talk about sensual scene? One thing, I have to ask that question. Let me go back in time for a minute. When sure. I first started to read Christian fiction, about Literally back in the 2000s, I didn't know it existed. So all I had consumed growing up had been like Harlequins and stuff like that. So I had read hot stuff. So maybe that makes it a little bit, my pad a little bit uh, more wider because I, I see things a little bit differently. And one of the ladies who wrote uh, a Christian romance scene, she was able to use different ways to describe men, but they she didn't put a lot of attention to the body. I remember, even in my head right now, I remember she said um, he smelled like lemon, like that lemon uh, cologne that some men get, I guess. And she so that's the about, sense of smell, yeah. Sense so of smell. sensual, then, okay, yeah. Yeah, it's a sense of smell. Another thing she focused on wasn't necessarily about his muscles being chiseled; it's how broad he looked and how comfortable he looked. He looked solid. He looked sturdy, and that appeals as well that he looks dependable. She talked about the cleft of his chin. And how she wanted to put her finger in the cleft of his chin. So here's a sensual scene that has no sexual connotation to it. Okay. Unless you, you know, have problems with clefts and chin, you know, but um, I'm, I'm saying, but there's other ways to use the term. Okay. And that's what a lot of clean, sweet, and wholesome uh, romance writers use. They try to find other ways to give the sensuality without getting the sexuality to it. Okay. And so that requires understanding that we're not just organs walking around, you know, listlessly, you know, that we are more than just that. Um, if I can, Steve, and you stop me if you want me to, I want to read this one quick from my book, A Match from Bernadette. 
just a really yeah, big go, yeah go for it. It, it so this is a preview again of uh, parker's book which is coming out in march it's, yeah. a, it's one of those mail order bride books we've all heard about so and and there's no copyright violation because it's your book so go for it i'm curious how how you attempt to to use sensual descriptions uh, in in a, in a better way so basically in this scene she just met the guy they had ran away from the plantation years ago and she met him now Okay, so this is an historical uh, mail order bride series. Giving herself a mental shake, Bernadette focused back on Big Tom. He always loomed above her like some ebony giant when she was 13 to his 16 years. Even now, he towered nearly a foot and a half above her. A mud brown suit with a black string tie hugged his lithe frame, leanly built with long limbs, long fingers that stretched wide, long legs. A thick beard and a handlebar mustache framed his thin lips. A broad halo of tightly coiled black hair crowned his head, giving him a dignified look. You look so handsome, Big Tom, she blurted out. Flavius, he murmured. His gaze shifted to the birthmark under her left eye and lingered. Heat warmed her cheeks as she recalled the night he cupped her face and whispered sweet words of promise. His dark ginger eyes deepened in intensity. When his fingers reached out as if to touch her, she figured he remembered that moment too. And that's just a quick, unedited draft of a Master Bernadette coming out next month, March third. Uh, March third. So here, I didn't say anything about him having striated muscles. I didn't say anything about you know whatever kind of sexual thing you can come up. Because I could, I could read another book and definitely give you more than that. Because he would be a blacksmith, right? And the, the the forge and he has on that metal not metal apron that leather apron and his muscles are bulging and sweats pouring down his face mixing with the the grease and all that and he's pumped I didn't do any of that yeah 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 that, that gets a little intense yeah <laughs> that gets a little intense and here I use the same thing but you got a picture of what he looks like and I didn't use anything that but this still in my opinion it's still a sensual scene you're still being um, brought into what this guy looks like you see that he's handsome to her you know. And you see those different things. So that's just, again, forgive me for it being unedited, people, for those of you who are really good at picking up my mistakes. <laughs> so, I, uh, so that's, that's it's a little harder to pick up on the mistakes when, when you're hearing it read aloud. Uh, one thing I noticed, and this is just my very quick fire interpretation there, sure. uh, you set up the scene in that these are two people who knew each other before, like years before when they were on a plantation. Yeah, they both escaped from the plantation, but they were okay. separated when they were on the underground, underground railroad. And now okay. years later, they meet each other again. So just a quick side note too here. This is a historical romance with plantations and the underground railroad. And I, I think we need a few more of those uh, in historical romances for sure. Uh, the, the context then, Parker, as you've described it in this scene, is that these are two people who are meeting again after a very long time. So there's memory in there. Uh, it is a moment uh, when you are going to be looking at someone's physical appearance and how he or she has changed. And so it makes sense then for her to scope him out. You know, it's not purple prose, I think, uh, so far as you've described it, uh, for for the description to include all of those details. And at least from my vantage, as you've described it, uh, it, it makes sense. And this is the proper kind of sensual description. Um, you know, there's there's a cleft in the ch and there's a cleft in the chin. Uh, there's a there's a birthmark. You know, all very vivid details, and that just makes me think of the potentially proper use. We're, we're going to talk about the pitfalls in a moment, but potentially the proper use of sense 
appealing details in fiction, especially because our world is full of evil corruptions that forbid the proper enjoyment of these kinds of details. And I think scenes like this can, not always, but can remind us of the very simple fact that God has made us embodied creatures. We are not spirits in a can. And then uh, at the at the end, when we die or get resurrected, God throws away the can and then just takes our spirits up to heaven uh, to rattle around amongst the clouds in another dimension somewhere. Uh, God has given us these bodies forever. There will be a separation between body and soul or spirit, whatever you want to call it. There will be separation at death, but we are destined in Christ to be embodied persons forever. Now, how that affects how we see other people, you know, reproduction, central detail and all that. That's another podcast. But for now, we know that God has given us the potential for attraction at the spiritual level, at the emotional level and at the physical level. We are all the same people. And in many cases, that attraction leads to love and marriage, which is the reason that God has designed people for stewardship and cultivation to be fruitful, uh, fruitful and multiply uh, in Genesis 2. And as I've mentioned, uh, you can read Genesis 2 and imagine those sensual details because of the setting. You know, this is a poetic and historical description of the origin of marriage right there in Genesis 2. And it's wonderful. Uh, and you don't get detailed descriptions of what Eve looks like or Adam looks like, uh, but they're not. Uh, abstract sets of words. They're the original human beings, man and woman, Adam and Eve. Uh, and some of those details, if you can call them details or implied details, recur through scripture. And Parker, of course, I just got to bring up Song of Solomon, uh, the romance right there at the heart of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, which is a tasteful, age-appropriate, and sensual portrayal of romantic love with warnings included. I mean, it's basically a scripted play in the middle there. And uh, many uh, saints and theologians have pointed out, you know, the analogies there of the love between Christ and his church, but don't skip the central descriptions as well. Uh, the point is that there is poetry in here. It is tasteful. Song of Solomon has a veil over it. It's not prancing around in front of you. Uh, it is, it is soft. Uh, it is uh, it is very wholesome in its seduction, if we can even say that. Uh, any thoughts real quick about just the Song of Solomon and, and the, the sensuality that is in there uh, that points to commitment uh, and, and healthy expression of our human nature? One thing I think in general that people make the mistake is using intimate relationships as a sign of romantic love. In the Song of Solomon, that intimacy is an outpouring of love. It becomes because she's just as eager for the bridegroom as he's eager for her. And he talks about how he finds her beautiful. He talks about her body, her neck, different parts of her. And she says, my, my man, he's a, he's a stallion. Our word for it would be a stallion or whatever. And she talks yeah, his about- His legs are like alabaster pillars and there's goats yeah, flying down from her stuff. head. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and she, what did, um, what, this neck like Lebelon or something, you know, but- Yeah, there's corn silk were, and grapes and yeah, all yeah. kinds of things. Le Lebanon first, gets a lot of name checks. Know, ancient erotica, but we wouldn't see it that way now. <laughs> well, not ancient erotica, but ancient words of sensuality because they're still describing this beautiful relationship. But, and the people around them are blessed by that relationship, if you think about it, because they're just as excited for this couple 
as a couple themselves, you know? So when you look at the Song of Solomon, um, there's words in there like, um, I, th- I think he says her kisses are like milk and honey. You know, they're sweet. And she's like, I'm eager, come get me, you know? But it's because they love each other, not because they're having relations that they love each other. You see what I'm saying? The one is right. a, a, a outpouring of the other. But you can have the other without love, but it doesn't have the same effect. And that happens all the time. And so with the Song of Solomon, uh, I was told, and you can probably correct me, I was told that even the the young men back in the day, they couldn't read it till they were like 30. Because I was told that how, as well. Yeah, yes. I don't know how true that is, but that's what I was told. Um, and when you read it again, especially as I, I read it as a kid, like, ah, oh, okay, whatever, you know. But, but as an adult, I was like, whoa, you know. You know yeah, said, it, it ages magnificently. You, you, yes. and, and but that's the issue, though, is that there was, there was a few years ago when several clownish megachurch pastors and, and foolish minister types got a hold of the Song of Solomon, and they had a field day with it. Uh, they acted like they had just found a copy of of a, of a bad magazine, uh, except that it was good, you know, and then they went to the pulpit giggling and decided that they were going to talk about exactly what the grapes meant and all of these things. And I won't go any further into that. Uh, I think it was actually Pastor John MacArthur who blasted this approach to the Song of Solomon and said, you are, un- you are ripping the veil off the Song of Solomon. You are ruining the poetry. Yes, of course, it's about uh, sensual delight within the context of covenant love. Yes, of course, those images are there. But when you go to the pulpit prancing and crowing about how you've discovered what all of this means, uh, and you just use a bunch of vulgar language to translate Song of Solomon uh, for the lulls, uh, for your sermon series about, guess what, guys? God likes sex. Oh, I'm so outrageous. You know, It just ends up not only being cringe, but unbiblical uh, and immature. Uh, and to this day, I cringe thinking about that kind of performance art, uh, which, I mean, I'm sure it was great for a crowd at the time. Uh, but now I think uh, people uh, who believe in the Song of Solomon and that central applications of it. We look back at that and we just cringe and, and laugh a little bit and go, why, why would you guys be so immature about that? And so I, I guess my point in bringing up Song of Solomon is with respect, not to crow because Song of Solomon somehow... Uh, rebukes my enemies who just want to suppress sensuality. Uh, I think that's a very immature way to use the book and a very immature way to look at any arguable positive portrayals of the senses in storytelling. So what I was going to say too, in addition to that, was that the Song of Solomon, uh, what I've always enjoyed about reading it was that in the Bible of all this prophecy, of all these things that happen in the Old Testament of God, you have this love story here. And that's what romantic fiction really shows is the excitement of the love story because you talk about how she's waiting for him. So there's a little conflict. You know, most love stories, there's some conflict, you know, something happened then the lovers are torn apart from something, you know. So there's this classic formula that has been existed since the beginning of time, you know, and you, well, before Adam, after they fell, there's this conflict there. And one thing we love about romantic fiction is our two lovers on their path to togetherness being torn by a conflict it could be a misunderstanding it could be external sources like in my particular book and i'm gonna do a little sub promo here (laughs) in my particular book um my girl and my guy they were running away from the plantation they were on underground railroad when paddy rollers which were slave catchers came and separated them they both were saved but he got knocked in the head by a particularly hard blow 
And that made him go, you know, he went to a coma. And she saw him, the last time she saw him, he was getting stitched up by one of the Quakers who were the friends of that time. That's the last time she saw him. But when they were children, they have vowed that when we are free, we are going to be together. But then 10 years goes by, he doesn't come see her or anything. So she thinks, oh, he must be dead. That would be the only thing that would keep him from me. And those little tidbits, you know, those things about romance that we love, that everlasting love, that commitment, those are things that I like about romance, you know. And then now she looks up and here he is. And I, why do you, now she's going to be later on, why didn't you come for me? I was waiting for you. You see what I'm saying? So that's the conflict that brings that together. Yeah. And so those are, it's, so when people think about romantic fiction, they tend to think about it, the physical, the physical. That's not always about the physical. Yes, the physical is involved, but there's more to it than just the physical. Exactly. And, and I think that's why uh, every romantic story or story with romance uh, has to have some conflict in it, whether it's a, a newer story uh, like the one that you're making uh, or even a classic story like Pride and Prejudice. Like there is a huge fan base for the Austin verse, uh, not because there's a bunch of descriptions in there, you know, sensual descriptions, but because there are all these conflicts, uh, all of these different rules, these prejudice. family issues. Right. You know, me too. I can say that now and still feel like a man. Uh, it's, to, to me, it's not so much the romance of Pride and Prejudice that I love so much, although that is also very nice. But the the conciliation there, I love how uh, it, it is deep beliefs about the other and the social classes and, you know, the titular sins there, Pride and Prejudice. I mean, it's describing Elizabeth Bennett and Fitzwilliam Darcy. You know, each one has these as one of these sins against the other. Uh, and then uh, they must work through then these sins uh, in order to understand one another. Uh, and, you know, Darcy in particular, you know, after he's rejected, spoiler alert, uh, must act like an honorable man, you know, even in a very difficult family situation that plunges the Bennett family into scandal. Uh, and he almost becomes a Christ figure, you know, redeeming not Elizabeth herself, but going through this moment of sacrifice, you know. Uh, something that could compromise his dignity and his pride. Uh, and then that helps to redeem the family. And then suddenly Elizabeth sees him in a very different light. And, you know, whether it's a simpler story, you know, for a more popular level audience or, or a, you know, 200 year old classic, you know, like Pride and Prejudice, uh, we love those stories. And the, the conflict is necessary in order to bring out that romantic love uh, in a post Genesis 3 world. And the thing about Pride and Prejudice, you have to wonder why is it still so popular? Why there's no you know sensual scenes like sexual scenes at all? It's very chaste. So why is it popular? Because the sensuality isn't physical. There's so much more going on in that romantic fiction, particularly with Mr. Darcy. He Mr. Darcy will be termed the first alpha male, in my opinion. He's like the first really uh, mainstream alpha male. You know, kind of he's arrogant prideful uh you know he, he says i love you to elizabeth but he's very grudging about you like what is that you know so there's so much going on to that and that type of thing appeals to those who like romance like i do we like the alpha male but then of course you have um the beta male and whatever and that's that's another subject for another time but we like that strong character of an alpha male and so let's take it down now 
Pride and Prejudice in one way or another has been repeated over and over and over again in different forms. Fantasy, I know you saw uh, Pride, Prejudice, and Dragons, uh, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, <laughs> which are hysterical, by the way. Um, it's been done over and over again. So why? Why do we keep loving this book? Here we are in 2022, and you still have a massive fan base of something that was written back in the 1800s. You know? So that's, that, that's the lure of romantic fiction, seeing those the, the, that trope and seeing that formula and loving that formula because it really never gets old, see? And so when we talk about sensual scenes, we're not always talking about the physical. We're talking about the things right. that make us think about these things. Yeah, chapter three is where we get to uh, what a lot of listeners have been thinking. What are the potential pitfalls of sensual scenes? Uh, and we've, we've tried, I think, to define what we mean by sensual. Sensual does not equal sexual. Uh, you can have a description of the effect uh, that a man or a woman character has uh, on the printed page, and that appeals to the senses, not always in a sinful way. What we then must admit then is that many, many readers can legit stumble, uh, even by the description of a man with broad shoulders and a cleft chin, for example. And this is where I'm. This is where I, I run into very difficult territory because now I feel like I have to speak on behalf of someone who's not there. And the problem that happens there is that someone can try to go all white knight and be a hero. Like, well, I'm here for the victims. I'm here for the vulnerable who can't speak for themselves. Like, that's not what I'm trying to do at all because I, and yet I'm, I'm naturally resistant to this. So I'm trying to understand, well, how could someone read a description of someone, you know, with, with long fingers uh, and a handlebar mustache and be tempted, you know, to, to stumble. Like I, I can, I think in theory, understand that, but it, for me, it's easier uh, if I compare, like, for example, I was reading a, a Christian historical romance. Yes, I know. Uh, it, uh, it is surprising. I must say I did not finish it. Uh, but there was, a, there was a moment where the girl is meeting this dude who's riding a horse and the prose just stops cold for some heat. And it's describing how his shirt clings and, you know, and he's all jacked and muscles rippling. And, like you know, I feel almost silly describing that, but I felt silly reading it as well because instantly it took me out of the story. And I go, I see what you're doing. This is the equivalent of the anime exploitation moment. Oh, no, he saw her in the shower, you know, and like, oh, no, it's, it's the hot spring scene. It's the beach scene from the anime. Like, yeah, well, here we go. It's a trope. If you're familiar with anime, at least shown in anime. Uh, the, the, the surprise reveal and like, oh no. And then she whaps him on the head and, you know, and then the screen flips around and we go back to the actual main plot line. Uh, it took me out of the story, but the effect is different for some readers. Notice I didn't say female readers, although I think that may be a particular temptation. Some female readers will be drawn right on in and in so doing. Uh, they fall into an effect which actually is described, I think, by the Song of Solomon in chapter 8, verse 4, uh, that says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That's the complete quote in the ESV, and I think commentators may disagree on what is meant there. But Parker, you already mentioned the, uh, the at least the rumored age limits of original readers of the Song of Solomon, that supposedly you had to wait until a particular age uh, in order to read this stuff. But I think it does speak to some wise choices is that there are times in a person's life 
whether they're single or engaged or whatever, or just vulnerable, just generally vulnerable because of their life experience or just their, their weakness in temptation. There are times where you need to avoid fiction with those kinds of details, whether it's dudes, uh, you know, with really nice mustaches or anything else. Uh, I think that's the one thing that I want to be aware of when I address this issue is that we have had so many satanic and fleshly assaults on the purpose that God has given us bodies and attraction and romantic relationships. Uh, I, I was actually in a discussion the other day on social media, and I, I, I'm not sure if I'd articulated this, but it was a bit of a political discussion. But I thought, and I, I finally put this into words, like, you know, I think I'm a single issue voter now. And the single issue upon which I vote is the sexual revolution, uh, because it has so many tentacles in society, cultural, religious, and political. And it has harmed so many people so deeply. It has wrecked families. It has brought abuse to churches. Uh, and it's getting us very bad laws and even direct assaults on religious freedom. But at the individual level, you have people who are so wounded by abuse, uh, by false teaching about you know whether or not they're responsible for the sins of the dudes at their church. Uh, we were talking some even more before the show about really, really egregious, terrible sin uh, the kind that the Apostle Paul would have just freaked out about if he was writing to the Corinthian church. Uh, these things have poisoned people. It has left them wounded. Uh, and even if people have sought therapy, uh, a Christian truth as a response to that wound, even a healed wound can sting. And I think that some people cannot or should not read stories with even the most G or PG rated physical descriptions without feeling that sting of trauma or feeling that temptation towards sin. So, I mean, that can be a, a difficulty with fiction in general, but I'm wondering then, you know, before I go on about my thoughts on it, I wonder if you can speak to just some of those temptations or the potential of vulnerable readers uh, who ought to avoid these kinds of stories and being wise about their own vulnerabilities. I think you really hit it on the nail because some readers are vulnerable to these things for many different reasons. But let me put it to you this way, too. There are people like me who can read certain things and don't have those sorts of temptations, you know? Yeah, same here. Um, yeah. But, yeah. So like uh, for me, I could read a hot scene. And I've been very blunt and open. I read everything. So I read Christian. I read secular, hot, sweet, whatever. I read everything. OK, I'm a reader. I consume books. You know what I mean? And so I have to say that so people don't think I'm trying to project something and I'm not trying to do that. But I think for some readers, if this really is a problem, then it doesn't matter how, like in my book, I, I can't see anyone, you know, getting fall up as someone can. And so I know for them, they have to be so careful about what they read. Perfect example, I had a family member, and I've talked about this last time on the show, I had a family member, uh, one of my author friends, she does write sensual and sexual scenes in her Christian fiction, but she's very careful about how she does it. And it may be a little um, explicit, but one thing she does, like if it's outside the confines of marriage, it's a, it's a consequence for that. She doesn't make it like it's not consequential things of that nature. And so she started to read the book. My family member started to read the book. But when it got to that scene, she stopped reading. And she said, I can't read this book because I'm trying to do X, Y, and Z. I'm trying to stay in right relationship with the Lord. And I read the same book. I didn't, I didn't bother me, you know, because I don't have those same vulnerabilities. And so what happened, I told the author that she was like, well, I'm glad that she just stopped reading the book. She didn't try to make it look as if I'm this horrible person. I said, no, it's, it's, it's not that. You have to be conscientious of your 
own uh, sensitivities to this thing. So I want to definitely put that out there as well. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to just say, oh, do what you want. And I do think there is a limit and God gives us that. So particularly when it comes to Christian fiction, people feel as a Christian fiction should be X, Y, and Z. But there are others like me who want a bit more realism in their Christian fiction, not just with sensuality, but I think I talked about this too, with violence, you know, uh, people get hurt, people die. I mean, I know my grandmother passed away, you know, but people die. Uh, people are hurt and to always gloss over it. I don't always think that's the right thing to do either. So that's always been one of my caveats when it comes to Christian fiction. So the, the marketing hat from Thomas Simpson Jr., host of the novel marketing podcast, our previous guest, you know, Thomas talks about it in terms of, of marketing and genre expectations. A person who picks up a, a romance that's been labeled and or marketed, uh, this is a Christian romance, this is a wholesome romance, something like that, uh, is going to then expect, you know, mild sensuality at best. You know, you, you start going, you know, you start unfading from black uh, at the moment when you should have faded to black. You know, the reader is going to be justifiably offended. And, and I think sometimes, especially a skeptic of Christian fiction, uh, can start to scoff and mock and say, well, what's with this person who doesn't understand that this is what really happens? You know, this is what really happens, but, you know, after the fade to black. Like, you don't need to mock that person. I mean, not just to be nice, but because people are dealing with their own sensitivities and their own vulnerabilities. Uh, and, and for my part, I don't want to read a scene that happens after the fade to black. Uh, and I actually uh, just remembered an example. It was an, a highly experimental example, and I don't even know if it's still in print. Some years ago, there was a Christian uh, 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 publisher, a small Christian publisher, that attempted a epic fantasy novel as part of an imprint that was going to be uh, more serious, you know, more hardcore content you know, this this book was marketed as and even hinted at in the title. Uh, this is basically the Christian response to a song of ice and fire. Uh, and I started reading it out of curiosity. I just remember a lot of battle scenes and elves and things and, you know, really detailed descriptions, kind of kind of violent. Um, but it, it wasn't quite to my taste. But I got far enough to know that at the midpoint of the book, there is this complete very detailed, fairly graphic scene of intimacy between a husband and wife. He comes home from the war, and let's just say she's very happy to see him. Well, I quit reading that, uh, not out of some, um, you know, a pearl-clutching offense, uh, which is the stereotype, but because, like, this would not be good for me. Uh, and, and I would go a little further, though, in thinking that I'm not certain it's good for anyone. Uh, that's where... I would draw the line and say, wait a minute, like, even if you're showing, oh, this is a love between a husband and wife, like, I don't think this is good for Christian readers. Uh, I still think that fading to black and stopping it, you know, describing the way that his suspenders uh, fit over his chest, you know, that may be, I think, the objective upper limit. Do you have any thoughts about that, uh, even if it is any gentle pushback? Well, for me, if we continue to stop at a fade to black, that's been a critique that's from the purity culture. And, and, and I want to be very clear. When I mean purity culture, I'm not talking about purity culture as if it's all wrong. I'm talking about toxic purity culture. Okay. That, I want to make sure yeah. we... I've alluded that. to that, like the, the selective modesty preaching and like some, yeah. of the, some of the bad metaphors that people have used, trying yeah. to 
get their youth group into shape and keep them from getting pregnant, but ultimately divorcing the rules from the gospel. Right. But I do think for me, again, this is me. And my, if you listeners, I totally understand if you disagree with me, please don't hate me. For me, when you show, you don't have to be explicit to show that either. You see what I'm saying? You don't have to be explicit to show a romantic scene between a husband and a wife. But if you were going to show it, the thing is to keep between a husband and a wife, you know, because this one preacher, you probably, you got to know him. I mean, everyone probably knows him. Gunger, you know, when he did men's brains, women's brains, he did that, uh, that seminar, men's brains, you know, he was like, Christians should be the best ones, ha- be happy in their marriages because of their, because of like Song of Solomon, they're just so happy. They're, it's an outpouring of the love they have for each other in within the biblical confines that God set forth, you know, but you don't have to be explicit either. I think you can, like I said, fade to black. Or some people, what they do, and I've seen this, remember, I've read romance for years. So what I've seen some authors do, they use very general language. It's very vague. It doesn't really mention parts. It just mentions the emotions that may come with that. You know what I'm saying? Is something wrong with that? Because those are feelings that people may have. You see what I'm saying? So it really gets, I have to say, it gets very about preferences. It really does. Like, for me, it's, I can read it, but like you said, for you, you couldn't, you know, and you said, I don't think it's good for anybody. But someone like me was like, if you can't handle that, that is an individual thing. If someone else can, does that make them the weaker brother? Does that make them the stronger brother? I think technically that would make that person the stronger brother or the stronger sister for that matter. Uh, The one thing I would want to hastily clarify is that it may be that such a person is more rare than we would like to think. This is, this is not, I don't think it's a black, white area. For some people it is though. It's a very much a black and white yes. area for other people yes. it is. So that's why it comes all back to, you know, what is your relationship with Christ? Is Amen. it going to hinder your relationship with Christ? Right. Like for me, there are certain romances I won't read at all because it's not that it tempts me. It's just, it doesn't tempt me at all. I don't, I, you said natural immunity. I have a total natural immunity to it. Um, I may have a wide palate, but I still have my boundaries too. There's just some things I won't read. And I think that goes to everybody. So you have to be conscientious of your relationship with Christ. If this is going to stop you, you know yourself. The Bible says, flee sexual fornication. He says, flee from it. You know, people say, well, Parker, you're not fleeing from, if you're reading those books. I understand. Yeah, pray for me. Okay. But I would say that, you know, he says it. There's a reason why he said it, because it is the one sin you have to run away from. But at the same time, which is very interesting, we're not sterile creatures. If I see a guy with a beard that I like looking at, I can't help. I like looking at his beard. So I say, well, you know, do I tell the guy across me, yeah, take off your beard so I don't look at it anymore. You know, you don't do that. Here's, you know? here's, a, here's a razor. You need to shave that because otherwise you make me stumble. <laughs> that sounds so weird, but it can it can get that way, too. Well, some women have heard the equivalent of that. It's like, hey, cover up. You're making me stumble. Like, what what, what for? Like, that, that sounds like a you problem. Like, yeah. Well, Parker, I appreciate you talking about the fact that there are some things that you will not read, you know, not just because, oh, no, you're going to be tempted, but because it, it sounds like the way that you've described it is it would be a waste of time. Uh, and, and how do you determine what then would be a waste of time? Well, I think 80% of that answer is simply by grounding your understanding of the purpose of fiction. Uh, not in some uh, entertainment or escapist excuse, like, well, what's wrong with it? It's just entertainment. It's just the story. No, overthrow that notion as we do frequently, we strive to at least at Lorehaven. Fiction is a gift of God. The ability to make fiction is God's gift, and therefore God, the giver, defines the terms of the gift. 
The same thing with sensuality, romantic attraction, any of those things. The creator defines the terms of the world building. We are all characters in his novel. Whether or not we're falling in love with one another or any of that, like we must be faithful to his standard, even in a post-Genesis 3 world. And that's what Jesus is about. And Parker, you've referenced some of the issues with what people call purity culture. Uh, the worst excesses of that notion was you need to guard yourself, protect yourself, follow the rules. And it often drifted far from the gospel and drifted into moralism or legalism. Uh, the overcorrection here then would be, I think, well, what's wrong with it? You know, uh, how far is too far? Like, well, nobody knows. Let's just attempt uh, fate and one another. No, let us not do that. Let us look to the Apostle Paul, who says specifically in Romans, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. There it is right there in a simple phrase. Does your enjoyment, does the romantic fiction that you like or whatever kind of fantasy fiction or whatever, does this proceed from faith, biblical faith as defined by Christ? If so, you're probably good to go. But if it does not proceed from faith, if it proceeds from the wrong kind of sensuality, which is condemned in scripture and which we are commanded to flee, uh, then you need to put away that romance book. You need to put it away uh, even if the description of the dude is basic. You need to put it away uh, if it is arousing the wrong kind of love in you that you're not ready for, as the Song of Solomon warns. Uh, and I still think that there are some scenes in books that are an automatic violation of that standard and that these, these scenes can cross over into a kind of pornography. Now, it's different because no one actually was sexually exploited with or without their consent to make that scene. It's just one person in a room writing it and then another person editing it and, you know, another person copying, copy editing it. But this still does affect the reader. This still affects the reader who then is being invited uh, on stage, this imaginary stage, to help portray this pornographic scenario. Visual and otherwise, porn will reshape a person's physiology. Like they're actually starting to come out with the research saying that it forges the new pathways in the brain and reshapes the plasticity of the brain itself, the actual neurochemistry going on there. It changes people just like any other drug or addiction. That's the science part. The Bible part is that instead of blessing readers with beauty, these scenes can change your soul. They're reshaping your expectations, uh, not just unrealistic expectations of men or romance, uh, but they are endorsing the wrong kind of sensuality apart from that commitment, apart from an actual person whom you know in real life. And that, I think, does lead to rightful warnings about these kinds of scenes, and just like we would warn about any other kind of porn. Uh, from a biblical vantage, as he said, Parker, scripture encourages us to flee sexual immorality. Uh, Proverbs 7 has the guy who's just wandering too close uh, to that one house in the bad neighborhood. And the author of Proverbs is watching from the window, watching this simple fool stray too close. And then out she sashays and starts talking about the way that she's strewn spices on her bed and all of this. That, by the way, is another example of sensuality in scripture. because. She sounds pretty hot, right? But the proverb author is using this as a warning. I assure you, my son, do not go there. Do not go there. Uh, and, and he's put in just enough detail to make it sound like a really great night. But then he's saying, don't, you know, her door is an open grave and whatever other metaphors that he uses. So 
that has got to be the warning that is ringing in our heads. You know, get get rid of the assumptions that it's just a story. Uh, you've got to be reading this from a biblical worldview if you're reading romantic fiction at all or romantic scenes or, or sensual descriptions in a fantasy book. Besides just the sensuality of romance, there's also the emotion part. And even though, like most women, we are attracted to the to the um, visual, just like men are, uh, there's also an emotional complex. So we want we don't want to be so general that we make generalizations. But I think women are just attracted to physical as men are. And I think men can be just as cuddly as women are generalized to be. But I wanted to go to Proverbs 5, 18. Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. And then he says, let her be as a loving hind and pleasant role. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times and be thou ravished always with her love. And then I say that because imagine no matter what, the romance isn't the sensuality, it's not the physical. It's the fact that throughout time, we are still together. We have weathered the storm of life. We have weathered everything. It doesn't matter what the physical, because physical changes. Beauty fades away. You know, strength gets where, you know, what's, what did um, he say in Ecclesiastes? The strong men fail and the eyes you can't start to see anymore. You get old. You can't, he said, you don't have pleasure in anymore. Romantic fiction, what I think, well, what I like about it is not always about the sensuality. It's about the emotion, you know, that no matter what, no matter if I'm old and gray, from young and nubile, if I do stupid things or I've done great things, no matter what, you still love me and you still care about me. You can't stop loving me. And get this, that's a reflection of who God is. God loves us on our worst days. Matter of fact, it says God loved us when we didn't even love him. And that, dear listener, is romance right there. I love you even when you don't think you are worthy of love. I love you even on your worst day. We get those romance stories and a guy says, I love you. And what did he does? He, she, the girl's in trouble and he runs and what? Throws himself out in front of the car, takes the bullet for her, takes the knife for her because I love you. Amen. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that it's not just Christ's portrayal of that kind of romantic, I think we could say romantic love for his church. That, by the way, is the secret meaning of marriage all along. A divine Easter egg planted in the Bible all this time. What do you know? Plot twist. Ephesians 5 uh, spoils the ending there. Marriage and romantic love all along was meant not just to show the love between a man and a woman, uh, but to show Christ's love for his church. And that's why I take some comfort, uh, even in the uh, the heavy implication in Scripture, when Jesus versus the Pharisees uh, starts telling them, you know, uh, there's not going to be marriage in heaven. You know, they, they're, it's more like the angels somehow. We do know that there will be some kind of fulfillment in marriage, and that is the union between Christ and his church. Until then, uh, whatever modifiers happen between now and the afterworld, I think our old groaning world now, the one that's been so poisoned by bad sensuality, by corrupt ideas about sexual attraction and romance, we need those wholesome, good portrayals of covenant romantic love more than ever, whether it's you know, showing what they used to call PDA, public displays of affection uh, in, in real life, uh, or more wholesome portrayals, uh, even some sensual details, maybe. We can disagree about how much is too much. Uh, some of that is also needed in our fiction, uh, because now you have people who fear human 
touch. Like even during the pandemic, some of the arguments about lockdowns where you are teaching people, small children now, you are teaching people to fear human touch. And what we learn about sometimes in foster care is that people who've been grown, uh, people who've been brought up uh, without healthy human touch, they end up conflating mere hugs and cuddles and all of those things with sexual expression. And that is abominable and dysfunctional. It's a complete disordering of how God has made us to relate to one another. Uh, and that just grieves me and makes me more determined to present healthy examples of touch and attraction and even friendship uh, in fiction. Like you need to have great relationships between bros and you need to have great relationships between women and you need to have great friendships between men and women. Very careful there. And you need to have great romantic relationships between men and women. Uh, the stories that we pursue will show us better portrayals of those. And unfortunately, not every story is like that. There are many, many, many that are just using sensual attraction and descriptions and sex scenes and all of this for satanic ends. Uh, I'm glad that you don't agree with that, Parker. I'm glad that you are trying to write better romantic historical uh, fiction. And I'm really glad that we got to have this discussion I look forward to seeing what's next for you. Uh, that book uh, is coming out on March the 3rd. It is called A Match for Bernadette, number 11 in the Marianne's Mail Order Bride series. So you can get that from Amazon. Parker, where can people track uh, your romantic fiction pursuits and whatever else you're working on at uh, your own podcast and even your work for Lorehaven? Well, you can find everything at parkerjcole.com. And uh, you can follow me there, get on my newsletter. You, if you want to be part of my ARC group, which is my advanced readers group, where I provide a limited number of ARC copies of my works, you can uh, go to my website there. Uh, I just really encourage those of you, because some of our listeners, they're listening to us going, I can't believe we even took time to talk about this. But I hope we've at least given you a different perspective about sensuality and not always equating it with sexuality as much as just invigorating the senses, the pros and cons. You have some of my thoughts, you have Steve's thoughts, and I just hope you think about it. You know, you can disagree with us. That's totally okay. Um, but hopefully you're still brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Do share us your thoughts, though, and as much uh, of your personal perspective on this as you dare. Email us at podcast at lorehaven.com. Leave us a comment on social media. Just search for Lorehaven and find wherever we share the links for this podcast. You can also use a feedback form at our website. It's lorehaven.com slash podcast. You can search for the comment section for episode 99. Parker, really appreciate your bravery in this discussion. I think we got through it uh, without stepping on too many toes here. Uh, really appreciate that. And Godspeed to you as you continue uh, not only enjoying the monster myths, but also the mail order brides. Thank you so much, Steve. Have a good one. You as well. That was a fascinating discussion with Parker. I wish Zach had been there for it, but my guess is it would have gone even longer and maybe more in depth. Uh, I hope that it was definitely a balanced discussion. At least that's how I felt. Uh, I hope that that is exactly how that comes across. And of course, you will have plenty of thoughts about it, as I mentioned. Uh, email podcast at lorehaven.com with your thoughts. Uh, share your struggles as much as you feel comfortable or share your victories. I mean, Parker seems to have some victories over the temptation moments that other readers, many other readers, I think, get from those stories. Uh, maybe at some point she'll be willing to share that spiritual secret sauce with us. 
I don't think we should write those off. I don't think we should dismiss that as just some kind of superpower. Uh, if any brother or sister in Christ is able uh, to do it, then I think we ought to be able to. I think the only disclaimer there is that most of us cannot. I know I certainly can't. Uh, if I read about someone's hardened muscles or something, then I'm just laughing. Uh, but if it uh, goes beyond that fade to black, then I have issues with that. And I wager a lot of you do too, as well as other central moments in books. So share your stories. It is age appropriate, um, but as direct a manner as you can, email podcast at lorehaven.com. You can also tag us on social media to search for lorehaven and go to the show notes for this episode and you can find the feedback box at the end of that page. From there, I see some flashing lights over at the comm station. We were so busy talking about mushy stuff that I almost forgot to check the holographic array for new dispatches. A step right over here. Yeah, it looks like there's a comment that uh, scrolled in a uh, text form here uh, from Michael H. Uh, actually, he's a friend of mine. And uh, spoiler alert, these are from my Facebook wall. When I shared our last episode, episode 98 of the podcast, the one with Thomas Umstead Jr., the title of that episode was Should Christian Creators Abandon Secular Fiction Markets? Going a little behind the scenes into how these stories are made and whether Christians can understand that Christian fiction is just some passing, boring, possibly creatively dull thing. And we really ought to just look into general markets for the kinds of stories that we like best. Michael H. replied, he said, quote, Many Christian publishers don't understand fiction. And once you are published Christian, it is very difficult to break out. End quote. I think that's true of some Christian publishers. I'm not sure it's that they don't understand fiction. I'm sure that plenty of them have lots of favorite fiction choices in their reading. Uh, but as we know right now, uh, most of the market in Christian fiction is, well, romance, uh, historical romance, cozy romance, mystery romance, detective romance, you know, any different modifier of romance. Uh, I understand that Parker's book was going to flirt a little with uh, theological background historical romance, and that actually intrigues me a bit, even as a non-romantic fiction reader myself. Uh, I would go back to Thomas's episode, actually, and I really hope that anybody who commented on that you know, listened to the episode, because Thomas had a lot of good things to say about respecting the parameters of a genre. Uh, you don't sit there and then yell at all of those uh, Philistine readers who like romance and don't like the kind of story that I'm into. Uh, that's no way to respect the different gifts and preferences uh, that God has given the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Uh, as for once you are a published Christian, it is very difficult to break out. Maybe. Uh, I still think that uh, there's a lot more nuances and complexities in there uh, that we won't go into because at Fantastical Truth, we still want to emphasize fans. This was a rare uh, uh, kind of stretch of that, not a break from that, uh, just a, a rare foray into understanding uh, the behind the scenes of these stories and where Christian publishing came from. Uh, finally here, uh, Tony M. replied in like fashion as well. Uh, she said, quote, Christian publishing just does not promote creativity and hobbles the craft of fiction writing. Ooh, I didn't mind it when I was working on my last manuscript, but my current work will be harder to sell because I want my fiction characters to have real adversity. They will be angry and struggle with sexual issues. I have seen people take apart a movie and actually list how many times people got undressed off screen or how many times they kissed. They will go into a coma over what I'm working on, end quote. Well, I have some thoughts about that, and uh, I shared a few uh, there on my uh, Facebook profile. I'm not sure that I would agree that Christian publishing in general does not promote creativity and hobbles the craft. Uh, it may hobble a particular emphasis on characters who are struggling with anger or sexual issues, mainly because the readers aren't ready for that. I I'm not sure that you could blame the publishers for stewarding their resources wisely 
and adhering to the expectations that readers have of books from the particular Christian or evangelical publishers. Uh, I think that Thomas is right, that it's going to take a new kind of tastemakers, his term, as opposed to gatekeepers. It's going to take longer term work of Christians, not authors, by the way, not just authors, uh, but particularly Christians who are willing to try to help reset readers' tastes. Uh, I do agree that Christian readers need to have more stories about characters who struggle with anger and sexual issues, among other things. You can craft a story like that, surely, uh, without getting into the kinds of central content that I disagree with, necessarily. Uh, I think that more and more readers are going to resonate with those kinds of themes. And if a particular publisher isn't ready for that, then do what Thomas said. Oh, gentle, aspiring author, go out and publish it yourself. You do not need the glory from a traditional publisher necessarily. You do need gatekeepers, but you can recruit the gatekeepers. Go to your pastor, run your story past friends who will uh, help sharpen your approach, help you grow creatively. Uh, there are many, many creators out there, and I know that there are many people listening to this podcast who also try to create fiction. There are many creators who want to make this kind of story. Uh, I, I think that we can rejoice in the fact that this is not a rarity. Uh, it's not rare to find someone who like, oh, I want to write uh, not your grandma's Christian fiction. Like, yeah, everybody, everybody, lots of people, hundreds of people I know want to write the better Christian novel that is not your grandma's fiction. And that's great. Go for it. Uh, if it's ready for publication, I say send it out there and independently publish it. Uh, but don't get stuck just because the big traditional Christian publisher uh, is working with their incumbent authors and folks who already got through the gates back in 1973. Uh, that shouldn't be an issue for people who can find a way, who can find their own gatekeepers and who can get genuinely good stories out there. We need some of them. And by the way, if your book is out there, if you're an author, send it to Lorehaven. Give it a shot. We can't review everything, but just go to lorehaven.com slash reviews. You can find the link to send your book and see if we can review it. Next on Fantastical Truth. I'm looking forward to saying these words. You're about to travel to a place of wonder, excitement, and discovery. Well, I don't sound like a particular female radio announcer, but either way, if those words just gave you some nostalgic chills, you're in for a treat with our next episode. And if you didn't recognize these words, you might find a secret history of Christian discipleship through a fantastical drama you never knew about. In episode 100, we will explore a top-tier, formative, Christian-made audio adventure series full of fantasy, sci-fi, time travel, mystery, romance, spy thriller, and a small town with big personalities that has been delighting and teaching generations of fans since 1987. Joining us will be none other than this fiction franchise's co-creator himself, Phil Lawler. Welcome to Adventures in Odyssey for episode 100 of Fantastical Truth. That's next episode. Until then, whether or not you celebrate Valentine's Day, whether or not you read romantic fiction or fiction with romance as a seasoning in it, and whether or not those sensual scenes make you stumble, run to Christ. Put down the book if you need to. But Jesus is faithful. He will not allow a temptation that he does not also allow you to defeat. But know that it is in his righteousness, not ours, that we are able to defeat it and see him as bigger and greater and more wonderful than any sinful temptations as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.